0: And welcome to So Curious, presented by the Franklin
1: Institute. In this season, Human 2.0, we will be talking to scientists, non scientists alike about technology and innovation surrounding the human experience. We are your hosts. I'm Angelica Pasquini. And I'm the boy Bay, but you can just call me Bay.
0: On today's episode, we're going to be talking about organs with Brian Shepard and co founder of the Health Design Lab, Robert Puglisi.
1: So, organs, yeah, and the design of them and the printing of them Mm -hmm. and all these weird things of transplanting, and uh,
0: yeah. So, typically, organs are something that you don't think about until you have to, right? I remember when I signed up to be an organ donor, right? And I have to be honest with you, I did it, but it is there's something about it that doesn't always sit right with me. I'm gonna be honest, I'm just like. Well, I saw this one dumb video once where the lady was awake <laughs> um, because she wasn't totally dead yet. But that's not something that
1: <laughs> I don't know what dark web. You no, it
0: wasn't. It was like 2020 dateline. Oh, wow. Yeah. But you know what? That That's a rare example. Are you an organ donor?
1: I have it listed on my driver's license. Yes. I ignorantly don't necessarily know what all the responsibilities uh, mean from that. You I won't know... have to. You will be dead. Right. And I'm kind of <laughs> hoping that that's the case. You know, uh, I just want. I, you know, I know it's one of those things where people are in need yeah. and I'm always of the person, I'm, I'm always of the mind rather that people's needs need to be met. Yeah. And I know organ donation is, is, is something that is not popular. People kind of, sh- you know, shy away from it.
0: Yeah. I but- mean, it's not a classic combo, but I do think that it's like. You, you obviously don't think about it until you need it. Right. But recently I heard about people who are, have healthy organs who know about the shortage of, of organs in our country. And they literally will go to a hospital and be like, I know I don't need this organ and I'm willing really? to donate it.
1: Yeah. Wow. I know there's a whole system. And even that, I, that's not even something I'm aware of. The mechanisms of I'd like to take this out of me and give it to somebody. Yeah. Like, where do you even start? Where does that even begin? And who's behind it?
0: Okay, let's get an expert in here, shall we?
1: Yeah, I'll introduce him. Our first guest is Brian Shepard from United Network for Organ Sharing, UNOS. UNOS is the engine that powers the U.S. organ donation and transplantation system and matches organs with recipients.
0: Hey, Brian, could you introduce yourself in your own words?
2: My name is Brian Shepard. I'm the CEO of the United Network for Organ Sharing, or UNOS, and what UNOS does is match donated organs with patients who need transplants. We really are the engine that powers the organ donation and transplant system, and we bring together the entire donation and transplant community—doctors, patients, and other professionals—together to make the rules to drive that system. Awesome! Wow. And one of
1: the most interesting things to me about UNOS is that it's not a part of the government and it's a nonprofit. Can you
2: illuminate to the listeners how that works? When organ transplant was created, it really grew up regionally because there are limits on how far you can transport an organ once it's been recovered before you have to use it. And so in the 80s, Congress looked at this regional system that had developed and said, we really need a single unified national system, and they passed an act called the National Organ Transplant Act, or NOTA, uh, in 1984. But at the time, they said, we want government oversight. We want a single system, and we want government to have a role in making sure that they follow the rules, that it's fair, and that it's appropriate. But we really want the experts in the community to be making these kind of decisions. And Mm. so we want a private nonprofit organization that can bring together doctors and patients and let them make the decisions that drive this process.
0: And that's how you guys came
2: to be? We came from one of the previous regional organizations that had sort of grown up organically. And that organization happened to be in Virginia. And they reached out to some of the other organizations and kind of assembled this team to bid for the very first contract under this new law in the 80s. And the the government bids that contract out every five years or so. uh, But we've been able to consistently win it and keep doing the work.
0: Wow. What was one of the first things you guys changed when you were given this opportunity?
2: You know, Organ transplant is always a race against time. Yes. Uh, once an yeah. organ is recovered, you've got to get to the recipient, get that organ implanted, because the longer it sits on ice, the more it's going to deteriorate and the less useful it's going to be. So a constant theme of the history of organ transplant is being able to reach further and further. As technology improves or clinical treatments improve, we can look for the sickest patient over a further and further distance all the time. It used to be They would have to be in the same hospital or the donor would have to be just down the street. But now we can move an organ for hundreds of miles if that's where the sickest patient is that needs that organ. You know, a lot
1: of people think organ transplant is about replacing people's organs. But to my knowledge, it's about
2: extending that lifespan of that organ. Could you explain that a little bit more? So there's really three phases of organ failure care and you know, pre-transplant, because there are not enough organs to go around. If you can treat organ damage without a transplant, that's better and save that transplant for people who really, uh, that's their only vehicle. So things like dialysis for kidney failure, things like heart assist devices for heart's Those are important pre-transplant remedies that make it possible, maybe for people to postpone transplant or even avoid transplant altogether. But then there are devices that can improve the span of time that an organ spends in between the donor and the recipient. So devices that pump fluid and oxygen through organs to make sure that they last longer and are in better condition when they arrive at the recipient for transplant. And then there are constant improvements in sort of the third phase would be after transplant. Immunosuppression medicines, better matching. Your body wants to reject a foreign object, wants to, you know, your immune system is supposed to repel things that, that don't come from your own body. For an organ transplant recipient, it's a constant balance of medicines that keep your immune reaction in check to keep your own body from trying to get rid of the organ that you now have to save your life. Totally. Are you familiar with the show Grey's Anatomy? Um, (laughs) I'm not the most familiar person on my team (laughs) with Grey's Anatomy, but uh, it certainly gets talked about a fair amount around.
0: Yeah. So basically in our culture, because this is something that you don't learn about until it happens to you, it seems like our culture has, like, dramatized this, and, and it is dramatic, of course, but we, we try to make a grasp using narrative storytelling. So on Grey's Anatomy, uh, Meredith Grey would always have to contact Yunos in deciding who gets an organ, but it's very dramatized and extremely drawn out. We're just curious a little bit about what Yunos is and also what it isn't. Like, what are the misconceptions?
2: So it is dramatic, whether it's as dramatic in the moment uh, as it is on Grey's Anatomy, uh, it's probably (laughs) harder to say. So what happens when a potential donor dies in a hospital? The hospital will contact an organ procurement organization, an OPO, and the OPO has staff that comes out and evaluates the donor, decides whether or not they're able to be a good organ donor. For example, someone who dies of cancer is not likely to donate an organ because we don't want to transmit that cancer. But the OPO staffer then puts all that clinical information into a computer that we operate. That's what UNOS does. So we take that information and we've got a database full of all the candidates for transplant, all the patients in the United States who need an organ transplant. And when the OPO says, here's a donor, our computer system is the same one that all the hospitals and OPOs are using. And it says, okay, here's where the heart goes. Here's where the right kidney goes. Here's where the left kidney goes. Here's where the liver goes. And they use that system to match that donor with the patients who are waiting. So in the moment, it's impossible to sort of choose between people, right? So we have committees that are made up of doctors and patients and other professionals that write rules that help sort the patients into priority. And primarily for hearts, livers and lungs, the rules are the closer you are to death, the higher priority you are. For kidneys, it's more the longer you've been waiting, the higher priority you are. So because of dialysis, you can wait longer. And so that tends to be more like just getting in line and waiting your turn. Whereas hearts, livers, and lungs, you could go quickly up the list by being so sick that you're about to die in the immediate future. So we have sort of set that IT system up to implement all those rules in the moment. So in the moment, there's no committee that says, well, let me think about this person, but let me think about that person over there and try to compare them. It's based on their clinical condition. It's based on all the information their doctor has put in there. And that computer uh, generates a list of candidates in order based on you know either how long they've been waiting or how sick they are. That's fascinating. You mentioned IT.
1: Are there moments where just human judgment and the IT clashes?
2: When the OPO puts the donor's information into the computer, it's not necessarily everything there is to know about that donor. And so what our system provides is an offer to a transplant doctor on behalf of his candidate. And sometimes that doctor can say, you know what, this organ's not for us, not today. And then we'll go to the next person on the list and the next person on the list and the next person on the list. So the computer isn't completely insisting that this organ goes to this patient, um, but the computer does put them in order of priority to receive and consider those offers. So there is a doctor making that human judgment, but only if their patient is up next on the list.
0: Around how many times a day is this happening?
2: We're gonna get probably for the first time this year, 40,000 organ transplants in the United States. That'll be the first time ever uh, we've hit that number and the the highest number in any country in any year in the world, which means that we're doing you know a few more than 100 every single day. And the advent of new technology like growing
1: skin from stem cells and cloning organ cells and all that stuff. How far are we from the reality of just growing organs in a lab and what does science still need to do or or not do to to make this a a possibility?
2: So we are close enough to that to sort of see it over the horizon. Not close enough that if you need an organ now that you can count on that to be your solution, Um, but close enough that we can kind of see it coming. There's a group in, in Wake Forest but for right now, it really is about the generosity of organ donors. It's about people being willing to sign up to give their organs when they die and, and to make that available to other people because that is the current source. Um, right, and that's right. the way that organ transplant happens right now.
1: What does the history of transplantation as a medical practice look like? And what were some of the first organ transplants?
2: Do you know that history of it? Kidney transplantation has taken place at very low levels since really the 50s. Um, Some of the first ones were done uh, in Boston and in Virginia. The very earliest ones were uh, living donor transplants. Uh, And the first one was done from a twin to his brother. Uh, And that's how they were confident that, that it would match. As time went on, we learned more about deceased donation. We learned more about liver donation was mostly developed in Pittsburgh. Heart donation was really... Uh, started to become more established in, in the 80s. It's astonishing to look at the age of this field and think this is really brand new. This is not something that my grandparents would have had access to at all. Uh, this this field is really still in the very early stages of uh, uh, of learning how this is done and, and making this happen. So
0: organ tracking service operates with the same fluency as an Uber service, <laughs> Right. So can you speak a little bit more to this and why the journey of organs from donor to recipient is handled with so much care?
2: Again, it really is because it's always a, a race against time to make yeah. sure that organ yeah. is still as, as high quality as it can be and and to get it to the right place. So we operate a, a GPS tracking system for organs and we only recently um, developed it. And, and in the pilot phase, one of the very first Uh, instances we had was a courier who picked up a package and didn't really understand uh, kind of what they (laughs) what they were carrying (laughs) Uh, and our team was watching them on a screen and saw that they were going away from the airport and actually were able to call and say that's a kidney, and it has to make this flight. And the courier turned around and drove to the airport and got there on time. That doesn't happen a lot. It was a break to get something that dramatic right at the beginning. But even allowing hospitals to know exactly when the organ is going to get there helps them get the transplant process started for their patients. A lot of times, the, at least the surgical prep and sometimes even some of the steps of the surgery have begun as the organ is arriving and because they know exactly when it's coming. And they can make that process work a lot smoother for the patient and get that transplant done quicker. Wow,
0: cool. Well, we learned so much. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Let's get a reflection. Well, that was really interesting because it seems like organization this organization you know so is like the the priority uh, is decided by a committee and i thought that that was really interesting because you're essentially um removing i like i like the way he said because it's anonymous it doesn't we're not giving these to celebrities first that was good to hear
1: yeah i had no clue about that system yeah the it behind it and I appreciate the clarification of when the IT might clash with the, the human judgment side of deciding who, what goes where um, and how it gets there. But I really appreciated the, the level of care and transporting, you know, organs yeah. and 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 just it's something that you don't think about when your body's working well. But when something goes wrong. You want to have an efficient system. And this seems efficient. Do you think this could be more efficient in the future?
0: Oh, my God. Imagine being a person driving the Oregon Uber. The Oregon
1: (laughs) Uber. It's five
0: minutes away. Yeah. I mean, I, I (laughs) I would be like, I think I could actually really lock into that and drive like NASCAR. Right. And then- Hopefully not get pulled over. Well, but I would be really, really take that seriously.
1: Well, I would hope that there's like a some lane, some passing lane <laughs> that you could just go into. Like I am transporting an organ. I need to get to this place. Because the lifespan of an organ is something that we opened up to. I had no clue, it was so like time sensitive.
0: Yeah, of course. And then also there's what he was introducing to us a bit was the synthetic organ concept
1: yeah do you want a plastic or some kind of rubbery
0: like, i'm down whatever yeah. I, if i need it i'm open
1: right you know i think the idea of it is like no i don't want anything that's made out of rubber or plastic but if you're in need mm-hmm. and you hear something shuts down like, i want that just give it to me exactly
0: okay let's get an expert in here shall we
1: our next guest is
0: robert s Bucliese. Prior to taking on a full-time role in healthcare innovation, Robert spent 10 years practicing and teaching in the specialty of emergency medicine. As a person with insulin-dependent diabetes, Robert takes personal interest in assuring that everyone has a voice in improving our healthcare system. Okay, Robert, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Can you tell us a little bit first about who you are and what you do?
3: On paper, I am the director of innovation design at Thomas Jefferson University and Jefferson Health. And I'm the co-founder and managing director of a place called the Health Design Lab. The think tank, it's a creative lab. It's a place where people can come together to think differently and try to solve problems in healthcare using concepts of design and creative arts and kind of bridging those two worlds together. So it's
0: design specific?
3: Our mission is twofold. We want more people in healthcare to start thinking about design as an important aspect to what we do, right? An important aspect to providing care, to building environments for care, to doing surgery. Everything that we experience in healthcare is designed. How has design existed in the past? It's basically like, I need a hammer, so here's a hammer, right? right? It's not a question of, wait, why are you trying to smash things with something? And what do you really need, right? And we frequently don't ask those questions, which is why so much of the healthcare system is designed so poorly.
0: I know that you guys are taking steps to encourage innovation and inclusivity in your space and you want to change the way we look at the future of healthcare. Mm-hmm. But I think first it'd be cool to just better understand for people who might not know how it happened.
3: <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, that's. A, I wish I could really explain that in a yeah. very clear and well thought out way. Yeah, But honestly, healthcare is a combination of systems layered upon systems, processes layered upon processes, right? At some point, you know, a long time ago, somebody did. Come up with a really great way of teaching medicine, practicing medicine. And then as things have changed, as the technologies have improved, as the way we do things have improved, people just started layering on systems, layering on systems add payment into the mix, payment becomes really complicated, add technology. It would be a discredit to the people who have done it well to say that it was all just Band-Aids and hacks, but it's a lot of Band-Aids and hacks. Mm -hmm. Smashing two computer systems together and hoping that they'll communicate or really well-meaning providers and healthcare professionals is doing what they can to serve their patients the best way they can with the tools at their disposal, which may not be the best.
1: As far as I understand it, you're using 3D printing technology to produce tissue similar to our natural body parts. Can you elaborate on that more? Could you explain more detail how this technology works?
3: We're trying to introduce people in healthcare to design. Well, on the other side of that, we're also trying to bring design designers and creatives into the world of healthcare you know, when you're talking about technologies like 3D printing, this is not just something that a scientist can operate. You have experts, when we're talking about bioprinting, you have experts in cell biology. How do you grow cells? How do you train cells to do certain things? How do you put cells together in ways that they begin to mimic? An you can organ. train
1: a cell. You can train you, a cell You to can. Yes,
3: you can. That's, that's the basis of how a lot of basic science, right? Biological science is done by taking these cell lines that have been quote unquote trained to do very specific things and using them as our experimental framework for how we test drugs and different chemicals and how they would react in a human, but in a petri dish. That's an entire field of expertise Mm -hmm. that doesn't even begin to touch the 3D printing part. It's a world of engineers and people who are technically experienced in things like software, coding, you know, devices and non-biological materials. And bioprinting is the combination of those two things. People with these skill sets, they grow up, they learn in completely different environments. Usually they rarely talk to each other. And it's only through like very intentional kind of um, environments or places like, you know, what we're trying to create in the health design lab, where people can come together from, you know, disparate backgrounds and do something together. To jump into the bioprinting space, it's a growing field. It's moving at an increasingly rapid pace. You're going to see a lot of innovation in that space over the next 10, 20, and forever years. Right. But we're at early days. And there's definitely experts around the world, not many, right, who could really talk about you know the details of it. But I think what's really cool to talk about is how did we get here, right? How did we get here to a place where suddenly we're able to print life?
0: Love that. How did we? That's right?
3: mind-blowing
1: just to hear.
3: Now imagine, right, you're mm-hmm. struggling with your traditional on-paper printer that we've been working on and perfecting for decades now, and now uh, increase the complexity of that by like 10 to 100 fold. And that's where we are with bioprinting.
0: So bioprinting is part of the rapidly growing field of regenerative medicine. Could you explain for our listeners what regenerative medicine is and what the role bioprinting plays in the field?
3: Regenerative medicine is what it sounds like, right? It's the practice of trying to regain function or regain something, right, that was lost. So if you're talking about regain a function of an organ. So as a great example, I have type 1 diabetes. My pancreas no longer makes insulin. In order for my body to get insulin, I have to inject it into myself. In regenerative medicine, one of the biggest goals in science right now, and actually there's some great, great news about it last week, is that we want to figure out how to fix our pancreas so that it starts making insulin again. That's regenerative medicine. And it can also span, like it's not necessarily just like high-tech reawakening broken organs. It's also like, you know, I hurt myself and I need therapy in order to regain that function again. Even that is a form of regenerative medicine in a way.
1: And on your website, you describe how these 3D printing and scanning capabilities have the potential to decrease costs, improve outcomes, and improve patient experience. How important is the case of bioprinting in the field of regenerative medicine and human life as a whole?
3: 3D printing is already having a tremendous impact on all of our lives. Yeah, And I do want to kind of segue from this concept of traditional printing to 3D printing to get us to bioprinting because it is all the same chain. It is a progression through the same technology. This is all the same technology we're talking about. The only thing that's really changed is the ink.
0: I like the ink analogy,
3: what is the ink? We're talking cells. Okay, got it, got it. So if traditional printers used ink, then 3D printers were invented, and they use plastics. Through the magic of kind of transdisciplinary collaboration, somebody was like, hey, we can take these 3D printers that squirt out hot plastic and just put cells in there wow. instead. And inject in a very precise three-dimensional pattern, different combinations of living human cells. One of the most advanced utilizations of bioprinting right now is actually in two, lo- two things. 3d printing functional human bladders that is then implanted into a person
1: that's that's the capability that we have today
3: Today. as we speak yeah so that is currently happening that's one of the only examples of a human organ that is being bioprinted for human implantation What
1: does it mean for human beings and what comes after that point?
3: Other things that are being printed for implantation are like stents. So kids who are born with an inability to keep their windpipe open and they need a very specific shaped thing to keep it open. Right now, certain centers are actually bioprinting. Sometimes it's a plastic. Other times I've heard it being made out of collagen or different biological substances so that the body can absorb it to keep that open. So that's another really interesting kind of human use. And you start imagining the possibilities, right? Researchers right now are printing these little miniature versions of organs to test substances that before we would have had to test on an animal or on a human, but they're able to replicate that kind of little system and put drugs in it and see how it responds to accelerate the development of so many things. We're not really constrained by the shapes, right, and the complexity of structures and how we put them together. The wall that we have to get over is in the biological side.
0: To make it fully functioning.
3: To make it functioning, to make cell lines that do what we want them to do, to make them communicate, to replicate the complexity of the human body is something we're at very early days.
1: Rob, I wanna ask about you. You're a person who is open about being insulin dependent and how this experience gives you a personal interest in making sure that everyone has a voice and improving our healthcare system. Could you speak more about your personal experience, how it informs your work and how important it is to make sure that everyone has a voice in healthcare? How does the Health Design Lab work to give everyone a voice?
3: The crazy thing about working in healthcare and kind of devoting your career to trying to make healthcare better is that you realize that everybody has an experience with healthcare. You know, whether it's good experiences, bad experiences, it's hard to find somebody who hasn't had a bad experience of some kind with our American healthcare system. I take that as kind of inspiration to use myself as an example to get others to share and be open about their own personal experiences because, you know, health is a very personal thing. You know, it's um not something that everybody wants to nor should they have to feel like they have to share, but Hearing the experiences of others is the best way to try to improve. And, you know, one of the core tenets of what I do in our work in the health design lab is to encourage those voices to be heard.
0: How essential is access to these type of technologies?
3: So the technologies are becoming more and more accessible. And it's one of those areas that is, again, accelerating almost as rapid as computers and cell phones and video games. Pretty much anybody can buy a traditional 3D printer, build it themselves. And you think the cheapest one I've ever saw is like 60 bucks, Uh maybe less. Now, so then what is the barriers now? What's the barriers to you having a 3D printer, a bioprinter in your home and making your own insulin? It's the science part, right? It's the getting to the point where you don't have to be an expert to use the technology. Bioprinting, we're still at the point where you have to be an expert to understand how to use the technology. In 10 or 20 years, that's not gonna be the case. I can't even imagine what that would look like, but I could totally see that same trajectory where you can buy a printer and you open up the instructions, it's like, pour a bottle of pancreas into printer. <laughs> like, <laughs> press go, make sure the temperature is right before you, you know, don't burn it. And then like, it just starts like pumping out chemicals that you need to live. Do you have wow. any
0: examples of people who you've assisted in their research?
3: That's why we exist, right? That's why the the lab exists is because we want to introduce these technologies to people who may not have taken that extra step right, to bring it into their work or bring it into the research because they thought it was too hard. They thought they didn't have the skills. We started with one research project. We have four active research projects going on right now. And as the technology becomes more ubiquitous in the body of research and in different places and people are seeing how impactful it can become, they're looking for it. And instead of having to start from zero, they can just come to us and we can accelerate their discovery process.
1: Awesome. Amazing. Amazing. (laughs) Amazing. Thank you for coming in and sharing all of your knowledge and experiences, like really, really good stuff.
0: Let's get a reflection. That was a really fun interview.
1: Yeah, the overlapping of so many disciplines, focus, because it's not just... Uh, you know, printing and it's not just biology. It's so many different things and 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 no one knows it all all at once. And so they they have to communicate with each other.
0: That was really cool. I also, I mean, this whole introduction of the 3D printer is going to be I think this is gonna be like the next light bulb. Yeah. Yeah. This is gonna be in the kitchen. It's gonna change everything. Yeah, it'll be in the kitchen. It'll be in every household. I think that what he's saying is we'll be able to 3D print everything and we'll have to see what that's going to end up looking like and then the rules and regulations around it
1: i'm baking some cookies i'm also printing a foot wait a second (laughs) literally
0: (laughs) okay this wraps up episode 10 of so curious thank you so much to robert and brian and thanks so much to you for tuning into this episode This podcast is part of the Franklin Institute. The Franklin Institute is a science museum located in Philadelphia. The Franklin Institute's mission is to inspire a passion for learning about science and technology. For more information on everything about the Franklin Institute, visit fi.edu. This podcast is produced by Radio Kismet. Radio Kismet is Philadelphia's premier podcast network for businesses looking to develop their own branded podcast content. Check them out at radiokismet.com. There's a lot of people who make this podcast happen. Thanks to the producers, Joy Montefusco and Jayatri Das. Our managing producer, Emily Cherish. Our operations head, Christopher Plant. Our associate producer, Liliana Green. Our audio team, Christian Sederlund, Goldie Bingley, Lauren DeLuca, and Brad Florent. Our development producer, Obeola Bukola. Our science writer, Kira Veillette. And our graphic designer, Emma Sager. See you
2: next week.